This is Crossing Bridges, brought to you by 1UP, a coalition to end police brutality. Each show, we bring together one person from the world of activism and one person from the world of advertising and entertainment to discuss the issues of police reform and social justice. Today's host is Aaron Michelson, president of Concept Arts, an entertainment advertising agency. He'll be speaking with Tim Cornegay, a community organizer and director of Live Free California, working to end community gun and police violence. Today's topic is Break the Cycle. And now here's Aaron Michelson and Tim Cornegay. Should we jump into some questions? Let's jump. Mass incarceration is often considered to be slavery renamed. What are your thoughts on that? 100%. And as long as the 13th Amendment exists in the United States Constitution, that indicates an individual can be treated as a slave if they have been convicted of a crime and sentenced to prison. That in and of itself means it is exactly that or the topping on systemic wrongs that once an individual ends up in the system there is something broken that occurred long before incarceration may have set in before an individual even steps foot inside a cell inside a cage and is physically incarcerated once you accept the mindset that you can't achieve certain things. You don't have what it takes uh, socially or economically. You know, you weren't born into it. And lastly, uh, you don't have the skin color to achieve the kind of dreams who are afforded folks who believe in the American dream. By the time you end up in someone's cage, you have followed a cycle that has been created possibly for someone just like you and for those who will follow behind you. Right. And I imagine the prison industrial complex benefits hugely from the amount of people that it locks up. It's a hugely exploitative in that regard. What we know as the prison industrial complex is one of the biggest employers in the country. A lot of the, the economy in the country is reliant on prisons because prisons are consumers of so many different products that exist, that create jobs for folks, not only correctional officers, but for paper companies, individuals that make paper clips, folders, chairs, cabinets, food products, clothing products, you name it, computers, computer screens, the whole nine. It's a gigantic industry that's really supported on the mistakes and misery of those who trigger the system and find themselves the subject of some degree of punishment. Why do so many that get arrested end up back in the system? The system is designed to achieve just that. If you take an individual from a depressed situation, which may be the environment that they come from, that they're making decisions based on survival needs, and you put them in a situation where they again have to survive in addition to being miserable, and you don't give them any tools to better themselves and you put them right back in the environment you took them out of, then it's a recipe for disaster. What other choice does an individual have but to engage in a behavior that's for one comfortable, one that you feel may support your needs until you're caught again mm -hmm. and have to recidivate or participate in that cycle that we call mass incarceration. Petty crimes are putting people of color in the system at far higher rates 
What do you think needs to be done to amend the laws so that individuals are granted a second chance for low-level crimes? The term second chance for most is a misnomer because most folks who wind up in the system never get a first chance. The extension of resource and services to put individuals in a position where they can support themselves and they don't have to commit a petty crime. Because when you talk about petty crime, trespassing, or vehicle theft, or shoplifting, and things like that, those kind of crimes are crimes of need, not crimes of greed. And when individuals are forced to survive, they're going to make decisions based on what they know how to do. If you give folks something to do, where they can take care of themselves and support themselves, I think that in and of itself will address the issue of petty crimes. And if an individual activates the system, they should be placed in programmatic situations where they're allowed to better themselves and not just being set somewhere and warehouse waiting for the time to be up to return to the situation that they came from. We just heard the guilty verdicts on the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin trial. I think this question couldn't be more relevant. There's a lot of feelings, a lot of emotion today. So many public instances of police brutality have been in response to minor injustices. Does the crime even factor in when dealing with such systemic racism? And how do we ensure the method is justified? I mean, that's a hard question, especially when when you have an instance of brutality that results in the death of a human being when it's absolutely unnecessary. Some individuals who put on a uniform think that they have the power to make life and death decisions. What kind of people are being allowed to enjoy this occupation where they have our lives in their hands? To be a doctor, you can't perform an operation without going to school and achieving some degree of practice through medical school. You can't do it as a dentist. You can't practice law without studying law. All of these situations require the handling of human beings and the handling of human lives. So how is it individuals are empowered with military-grade guns that can make life and death decisions and all you need And most of the states in this country is a GED or high school diploma and six weeks of training. There is no training that exists for six weeks that can address the biases that we carry into our own clothes. When you couple that with the ability to make life and death decisions, an exaggerated sense of authority and respect with unfortunately a degree of racism, it's a recipe for disaster. Okay. So when you talk about being just, the act in and of itself just highlights the fact that this system, this law enforcement apparatus that exists around the country, it exists in a culture of yesterday. And the way things were, stuff has really never changed. So the change that needs to be addressed is systemic. And that brought the spotlight to it, but this individual is, has been found guilty, but the entity that's really guilty, that should be indicted, that should be changed, that should be punished and broken down is the system in and of itself that allows that to happen on a daily basis. That was happening long before body cams and all this other stuff. It's just starting to get caught on camera now. 
we put them in that power, we pay for them and they represent us. If we're not on top of that, if we're not attuned to that and paying attention to that and reforming that, you're saying that cycle just can, gets more and more vicious, right? More likely to penalize somebody for something that shouldn't be in it, you know, an incarcerating offense. And, and yet it becomes unjust and drive someone into that system. And then once they're in, it just continues to drive them back there. As people, we should demand accountability. Like we, we cast our vote, we get these representatives, they make laws that affect and impact us and individuals cast their vote without seeing it as an investment in the development of government. That once you do that, politicians owe you a degree of accountability. So when you do that and walk away, then you allow someone just like you to think for you and try to think what's best for you when you should just lift up your voice saying that this is what works and for this issue right here law enforcement is not the answer to public safety they never were and they never will be the community has to become involved in its own safety what are your thoughts on that idea of the, trying to mitigate the chances of something escalating? Is that something that we should be teaching or training, or is it is it a wasted effort we should be going towards reforming with all our efforts? It is a point of what can you do when you are stopped, but what really needs to be addressed is hiring for police officers, the equipment that they use, accountability, and the kind of training that they receive. There should be some degree of accountability that when one officer is misbehaving like that, the others should be empowered to be like, that right there is unacceptable to, to either do something about it or to immediately call other authorities that can address it. But just to be a witness to something like that, if you as a regular person witness me do something like that and you don't render resistance, you can be charged with a crime. Mm-hmm. So right. that portion of it has to be changed for an individual that's being pulled over. And unfortunately, I've been pulled over a lot. If it's nighttime, I turn the lights on in the car, roll the windows down and stop and stick my hands out the car. And when they say, put your hands back in the car, no, not going to do that. You need to, you need to see my hands because then I'm not a threat. And with the lights on in the vehicle, if there's anything that you think is like inside there that may be a threat to you, I'm turning the lights on in the vehicle so that you can see it. If a person doesn't have lights, now that you have like a cell phone, getting illumination inside a vehicle so they can see, to me, is a way that you can possibly avoid a major confrontation. But I just think it's wrong that safety is a luxury for black and brown folks. And for some folks, if you happen to be broke and you have to move around in the world with the thought of comply or I might die. I mean, that thought in and of itself fills us with, with so much adrenaline and that fight or flight mechanism is unfair. Right. In a sense, it's kind of a version of a, a protest or a civil disobedience that even though in the moment they may be saying, put your hands in this place at the same time, that that ask or that request potentially sets them up for or gives them some support or the ability to hide behind. Well, I couldn't see 
his or her hands in that moment, right? Yeah. So knowing that those hands are there, there's nothing that could have been. So it's a kind of a disobedience. It's in a certain way following the laws so that the laws protect you or so that things are getting captured on camera. What's the legal system's role in assuring that prisoners are ready to reenter society after they've been released? An investment in pre-entry. That means the kind of programs inside these incarceral institutions that are beneficial to individuals that you can leave prison and actually have a reasonable expectation that you can be employed somewhere and the bad decision that you made is not something that will be held against you moving forward. Can you give me some examples of what those programs look like or what, what the, you know, what the, those kinds of, um, you know, those kind of plans or, or actions look like? So I think that there needs to be a degree of trauma informed. Once you have hit that part of it, you're probably extremely traumatized to try to understand what the decisions were that landed you in the position that you may be in. I think effective schooling in a creative manner, not just reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also the education of understanding who you are as an individual and the role you play in the world you live in. I think that there should be like vocational training programs that have real life application and not training me as a janitor in prison, training me to do something that there's not a real possibility that I'm going to be able to get employed when I get free doing it. So just having reality-based, real-time trainings where an individual can put themselves in the best position to execute when they get free. And also a component that allows a person to, before they get free, to exercise in a degree of decompression like therapy because prison is intense. Even from the lowest levels to the highest levels, for a good example, the, the onset of COVID-19, when we were all like scared to come outside and scared to have people stand next to us and scared for people to breathe on us and just not wanting to get sick, not wanting to be harmed, not want to be asymptomatic and harm someone else. Well, those feelings that we experience, that some experience in the onset of COVID is what individuals in prison experience all day, every day. People out here have never been in trouble sitting around like, oh, I can't take it no more. I need to, I need to go outside. I have to walk around. I have to just imagine feeling like that for one year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50 years feeling like that. And then the door opening saying, okay, you could be free now. Hmm. What about my, my self-care? What about, you know, this decompression therapy I need? I, I'm not ready for that. This fear is ingrained in me. I don't know how to function outside of this fear. And, and that's how you have to look at that. that. That is what you're dealing with, with a lot of us who come home from these places where we're filled with the fear and anxiety and it's never addressed prior to getting free. And you get free and you may get an opportunity, but that portion is never addressed. And I don't think that's fair. And it's, if you say the, the government that says it's responsible for one and for all, it's, it's a governmental responsibility that if you're gonna put an individual in like that, you should invest in making them better, not invest in an institution that just incarcerates and commodifies misery and then send an individual home 
with the unreasonable expectation that they may get lucky and not commit another crime. It's about what we do before people get to that point that they're getting locked up for the first time. And then once they are locked up, that they're being invested in during that time and not just being kind of locked up. Yes. What specific policies would help reduce mass incarceration without reducing public safety? The concern about police reform, I think people have this idea maybe that it just means like we got to get all the police off the street and get them out of the way. That's not really what the defunding or reforming the police is. What are things that we can bring forward that really aren't, uh, you know, and not to say that defunding the police is arguable, but what are the things that we can bring forward that really are inarguable, meaning like you just said, investing in people, investing in uh, in our communities. What are the things that we can spend our time and efforts that will reduce mass incarceration without, you know, impacting public safety or at least even making people worried that that's going to be a result of what we do? The most obvious thing that could be done is to invest in the root cause of what's going on. We literally live in a society that is structured based on, unfortunately, skin color. There's a reasonable expectation that I'm a particular kind of person just because of the color of my skin. You need like social programming that addresses like inequities. Using myself, for instance, I, I grew up less than a half a mile from the University of Southern California, from USC. Never thought about going to college until the opportunity to go to college was not present and I realized that it was an opportunity. The, the investment should be in making sure that folks that are in communities like that are aware of it, that making sure that individuals believe in themselves that they actually have a chance to go to college and not that a lot of individuals here like you, ain't, you'll never add up to anything because, <laughs> you know, the dream killers, the dream killers that utilize that phraseology to break an individual down before they have a, self, a chance to build them up. So you, if there's got to be an investment in the root cause of the problem, and that's social, political, economic inequities. If you don't feel like you're a part of the system, you're always going to operate outside of the system, and that tends to have negative consequences. You can invest in the prison industrial complex and the police industrial complex, and you're going to have plenty of bad outcomes from that. And maybe you'll have increased safety in some capacity, but you're also going to have plenty of bad outcomes. But you're never going to have bad outcomes if you invest in sending more people to USC or getting more people opportunities. That's not going to have bad outcomes, right? It's like it's yeah. money easily spent in a direction that has little to no downside. Yeah. According to the Marshall Project, the majority of those in local jails can vote, but few do. Why do you think voter suppression is such a huge issue? The system is geared to work in a particular manner. The engagement of others who are outside the system that have different perspectives tend to impact the system in a manner that it doesn't want to be impacted. Conservatives don't like reformists or progressives to be at the table because they change the direction of the way things are going. So when you have folks involved in the voting process, you're empowering individuals and letting them know that their vote matters, that they have an investment in the structure of the society that they live in. 
voter suppression, it disenfranchises folks and it makes individuals anti-system. And then the system is allowed to run on its own course and operate nine times out of 10 in a manner that's not in the best interest of the folks that is set up to govern. You know, my team, for example, the last 12 plus months have really been focused on what are we doing as a company. I think so many companies across the country, but you know, particularly in the, in the media and entertainment space have been focused on what are we doing, right? And 20 plus years ago, when I entered the workforce in the middle of the startup bubble and uh, or at the end of the startup bubble, and people were talking about like, well, what, what kind of benefits do you have, right? It'd be like, you got scooters in your office, you got a ping pong table. Thankfully, we've gone way beyond that, right? And I'm excited because it's more about the moment of transition. This is not a moment, but the transition is a moment, but I think lasting change the question now is more about what is this company doing? A few of the things that really excite me about my team and I think the industry at large is the questions are, what are we doing for our community? What are we doing as a company? What are we doing for our employees, for mental health? The kinds of questions that are being asked are way more profound than they were when I entered the workforce 20 years ago. We have people who are only in their first five 10 years of their career asking questions that I don't know that any employee ever asked of their company. And they're great questions. They're important questions. So the question is really, how do you see us as an industry, companies like ours as an industry, supporting your cause? How can we be an ally in you know, breaking the cycle of incarceration? Uh, number one is to raise the voice of those who, who have been subjected to the inequities. Give individuals opportunities to share like their experiences, the lives they live and their successes, because the way the narrative works now is we talk about recidivism, 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 and the recidivism rate is 70% or a little more. But when is the last time you heard a conversation where you, that there's been talk of the 30% that doesn't go back to prison? That 30% of individuals who figure it out and who put themselves in a position to live their life as best they can with the tools that they've been given. There can be a line shined on those who have had that incarceration experience to show how they've managed to be successful and that demonstrated to others. I believe that that's a degree of motivation because it's like this individual has been where I've been to help like destigmatize the fact that a person has made a mistake. None of us should be frozen at the last bad decision that we've made. For the incarceration rate to be what it is, there's a hundred times many people who never got caught doing anything and should have been incarcerated. So, but for luck, but for chance, but for somebody seeing something in you and giving you an opportunity, you too, he too, she too may have suffered from the same experiences. So just be able to open that box up, share those stories, and get them out there to people. Regular community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, non-government organizations that are engaged in advocacy work, that are engaged in reentry work, that are engaged in anti-incarceration work, and invest in them. Invest real dollars and invest time. If you believe that individuals who have made mistakes deserve a first chance, then use your voice to say that this is the best way to lead forward and help. 
we got to connect a bit before this conversation. And I just loved hearing your stories. What was that moment where you were supported or where you had an ally that, that helped? I know you talked about realizing it when you were incarcerated, but there had to be that moment where you know you looked or reached out, but what was the moment where somebody met you, you know, halfway, if you will, or even at all? It took a lot for me to even believe in transformation because I was totally bought into the narrative that I could only be a particular kind of person. But one incident that really, 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 really stands out to me is, and it's a situation of incarceration. I was in prison and I just got transferred from one prison to a new prison. And because I had a degree of influence in prison, when I got there, the TAC team or the security squad came and took all my property took my TV, my typewriter, all the book, everything that belonged to me that was in the cage with me, they took it, saying that I was under investigation or whatever. So about three months later, I got summoned to the office to talk to the captain of the squad. What he said was, I really wanna lock you up because I can't figure you out. And because I can't figure you out, you make me uncomfortable, but, I read all this stuff that you read. I read all this stuff that you write and you, you too smart to be this stupid. So I'm not going to lock you up. I'm not, I'm going to give you a chance. And if you take the way you think, the way you write, the way you speak and you utilize it to help people when you get free, you'll be all right. And I'm going to give you a chance. And that moment right there is to me is pivotal because I was anti-establishment in there. So as far as I was concerned, it was, I was always trying to outwit, outdo, outsmart, outright the administration. So for a person who had the power over me to put me in what they call the shoe, put me in segregation, in solitary confinement for another 15 years to say, I'm not gonna do it. I'm going to give you a chance. And if you follow on this path right here, you'll be all right. And I took that chance and a few others followed on that path and I've been all right. Is there any point post-incarceration, somebody that isn't within that system, if you will, a story that you want to share where, you know, an impact from someone, again, an ally, somebody outside of the the system stepping in but playing an important part you know as companies is it is it us hiring or recruiting within you know other circles or other other places is there any examples that you can give us in that area i'll give you the example of the executive director of the organization transition from my new job is, is uh la voice it's like a faith-based organization the executive director gave me an opportunity after a few conversations and gave me a job to be a community organizer. In doing that, seeing something in me, he at one point in time asking me that I want more responsibility. And I was like, yeah, I can take some more responsibility. Now, all this is based on trust. He has, he's only known me for a little while, but he's seen some stuff in me. So he gave me a responsibility over a political engagement, like a C3-based call center, making phone calls over LA County and the state of California to 
get some of these legislative measures passed in 2016. And because I felt like I had nothing to lose, I was like, okay, I'll do it, but I'm only going to hire individuals that's been in trouble. And of course he looked at me like I was losing it. And I was like, yeah, cause I haven't been out that long and I really know how to deal with people. And I know that all people need is a chance. So it's like, all right, I'm gonna give you a budget. You hire who you want to, and you show me what you can do. And the result of like that team of 36, 99.9% formerly incarcerated folks, the work we did, the hundreds of thousands of phone calls, that we made help pass Prop 55, 56, 57, JJJ, and HHH for the city of Los Angeles and him taking the chance. His name is that Reverend Zachary Hoover. Him taking that chance on me has not only let me step into my own power as a different person and be able to use my communication skills and influence to bring change to other folks' lives, it just like opened up the door to so many additional opportunities, including this one right here, because when I got the one out relationship, I was a justice transformation organizer at LA Voice. That's one of those situations where somebody saw my ability, gave me a little authority and some power to make decisions. And as they say, the rest is history. Awesome. Awesome. It's so great. So great to be in conversation with you today, Tim. Do you want to take a minute to just talk about what you're doing directly, what you know, your work is, and also give us a URL or anything you want to plug here before we wrap up? Currently, as the uh, director of the Live Free California Coalition, my focus is bringing this network of or this coalition of organizations from across California to a table where we discuss how to address community-based violence whatever version that it comes in and police-sponsored violence because the, the number of lives lost because of this violence has, it's become unacceptable. And all of the mechanisms that are in place, it has an impact. And my position is to bring these organizations to the table to develop uh, an agenda that's based on the issues that impact the communities that we all come from, that we all represent and from there engage in best practices and trying to impact policy, structured to impact change in a manner that's uh, most conducive for the community, for the black community and for the brown community. Thank you, Tim, for joining us today. Thank you. I really hope that everyone enjoyed this interview as much as we did. Stay tuned for the next interview with Crossing Bridges. Thanks again, Tim. You've been listening to Crossing Bridges, presented by OneOp. Today's topic was Break the Cycle, hosted by Aaron Michelson, president of Concept Arts, and his guest, Tim Cornegay, community organizer and director of Live Free California. To learn more about OneOp and our mission to end police brutality, visit oneop.org.